Station 2 Science Night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. With me, as always, is Steffi. Hi. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we are talking about sunken ships, de-extinction debacles, and a dino disagreement. In the second half, we'll feature Jason's conversation with Richard Sherwood, a craniofacial researcher from the University of Missouri. But first, the news. It happened again. For years, it's been happening, really all our lives. And we just sit by and watch this theft every year. I personally have remained silent on this topic like a coward, but no more. It is time for the good people of the world to stand together and end the tyranny of time theft. Just one week ago, the time bandits came in and stole another Stephanie, hour from me uh, and my... You want to stop him? It's it's he's he's going on and on and on. What's up, James? Are you Sorry. okay? Kind of, kind of blacked it out there for a little bit, but uh, let's talk about daylight savings time. So, last Saturday morning or Sunday morning or whenever it happens, the the United States government went in and stole an hour of our time, and. It is not without consequence. So the American Heart Association released these stats that the Monday following the spring forward daylight savings time beginning, there's some pretty dramatic increases in some things, like a 24% increase in heart attacks beginning the Monday Monday following daylight savings time, an 8% increase in ischemic stroke rates. There's also an increase in electricity usage eventually, and most importantly, there is a 100% decrease in my mood. And this article gives some tips like getting extra sunlight and going to bed earlier and blah, 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 blah. But what it doesn't say is that we should just end this now. I agree. We can just make this the time. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, why don't we just stay on daylight savings time all the time? Like the only benefit that we have, at least here in the western portion of the eastern time zone, is that the sun stays up really late at night in the summer. It's fantastic. We get all sorts of daylight. It's the only benefit of the whole thing. I do take issue, however, James, with your characterization that the U.S. government stole an hour from you. Really, all they've done is borrow an hour from you for now. They're going to give you an hour later in the year back. So it's almost akin to paying taxes, rather paying the government taxes as you go out through throughout the year and then waiting for a refund. You're basically giving them an interest-free loan. So really what you should be doing is charging the US government interest on your hour. If- time interest? Yeah. I don't like taxes yeah. and I don't like stolen time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the increased heart I 24% yeah. increase in heart attacks. That's not an insignificant number. Heart- and that's just in the US. Well, and then compare that to a decrease, a reduction, 21% reduction in heart attacks in the fall when we reverse it, because people are getting that extra amount of sleep. That's impressive. Yeah, but I feel like we could just even it out and do nothing and just have it be the time. I agree. And here's the thing. like I always heard the story about how this was a thing to help farmers and sow the fields and everything, but it's a lie. Even that is a lie. The farming lobbies lobby against daylight savings time regularly when there is things to do. The only people who are lobbying for daylight savings time or that I could see were the Chamber of Commerce. Why are we doing that? I mean, let's talk for a second about the increase in energy usage, right? That's something that that bothers me a little bit. Because the idea was that Mm -hmm. if you had more daylight hours, you wouldn't need to light your lights as early. And so you would actually reduce the amount of electricity being used. But it doesn't Mm -hmm. seem to play out. Like, it's just another beautiful hypothesis ruined by data. I think it's just because so many more coffee makers are going that it it evens it out. Which kind of feeds into all the other health things (laughs) that we're doing (laughs) to make up for this lack of sleep. Yep, it's the coffee makers and all the snooze buttons being hit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I guess like the defibrillators for the, right. for the heart attack. There's that. 
Yeah. There's also a slight increase in car accidents, too, the day after or the first day after. I also looked into this, too. And then due to federal law, night shift workers will get paid for only seven hours of work that they complete instead of their usual eight-hour paycheck. Time theft. Yes, but again, aren't they going to get that back, assuming they still have that job in the fall? Or do we know? That doesn't help them now, right? Yeah. No, that's true. That's a very good point. It doesn't help yeah. them now. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. All right. Enough of this. End daylight savings time. Do it now. Take a stand for something. And let's move on. Hey, everyone. It is James just jumping in here. And I gotta say, we recorded this segment on Tuesday, March 15th at about 10 o'clock in the morning. And apparently, upon hearing this, the United States Senate later that day passed with unanimous consent a bill that would make daylight savings time permanent and save us from the tyranny of time theft. I'm not going to say that they were listening into our recording but I'm also not going to say that they weren't. I will leave that up to you, dear listener. And from all of us at the Science Night Podcast, you're welcome, America. We'll now return you to your regularly scheduled Science Night Podcast, already in progress. In 1914, Ernest Shackleton and his crew, attempting to explore and map Antarctica, set out aboard their trusty ship, the Endurance. Upon reaching their destination of the Weddell Sea, the Endurance got caught up in the ice because it's Antarctica in the wintertime. And the crew was resigned to hanging out on an ice floe until the spring, which seems miserable. But here's the thing about wooden ships and getting stuck in the ice for a prolonged amount of time. It's bad. So upon attempting to make their way out of the ice, the Endurance began to sink, and the crew transferred their supplies to the ice where they would drift for some time before eventually making their way back to safety while the Endurance found its new home at the bottom of the Weddell Sea, where it remained forgotten until March 9th of this year when the Endurance 22 expedition, with the help of South African Polar Research Team, announced it had found the Endurance. The wreck is currently being surveyed and filmed right now with a documentary planned to air on Disney Plus later this year, and I believe a documentary is airing on the History Channel at this moment right now. So go check that out. But what they're not going to do is try and pull it up from the bottom, which I thought was a good a good thing, because we can learn a lot from ships that are at the bottom of the sea. These things happen, you know, somewhat regularly where you find... Um, a ship that you didn't know was there, or you've been looking for it for hundreds of years, and now you found it. And now you can you know, get a nice view of what life was like for the crew at a very specific time in history, um, especially when it's like a historic period. It reminds me of the archaeological movement in the like late 70s, early 80s out of the University of Arizona called Garbology. And the idea there was that um, you could go and dig in landfills and actually get a good sense of what was important day-to-day lives of people living in the area based on the stratigraphic layers of the trash, which I thought was pretty cool. So, you know, if you found like a half-eaten hot dog, for example, on top of a newspaper from a specific date, assuming that that hot dog was eaten at the same time that that newspaper was printed, you had a kind of an interesting view as to what life was like on that day in a given place. And this seems very similar to that, right? Where you can go and, and see... Now, what were they carrying? Now, granted, they moved a lot of their supplies off of the ship before it sank, so it's not going to be quite as informative in that regard. But still, the way that the ship was built, the sort of day-to-day, non-critical-to-survival lives of the crew are going to be recorded in that history at the bottom of the sea, and that's pretty cool. The images are fascinating, too, of the ship, so I can't wait to see the documentary as well. I mean, how well it was all preserved at the bottom of the sea is it's fascinating. And we're in the Weddell Sea. I was just going to say. I'm sure there's some Weddell seals around there. Yeah. This could be, in our combined universe, this could be where the Bodie McBoatface team has their secret base in the Endurance. It, it writes itself right now. <laughs> I think a very different story, maybe one that could appear in Pulp, 
from Beyond the Veil could be written about just people hanging out on ice floes after their ship sinks in in the early 1900s. So maybe Cody, maybe C.S. Sullivan should get on writing that story. (laughs) But let's move on to one last quick headline. And this is really just a couple sentences about the COVID pandemic. Notice that restrictions are starting to ease. It is likely you're encountering a return to a version of a pre-COVID world. And that can lead to a little bit of not knowing what's happening. The messaging has been a little bit muddled in this aspect. And if you want some more information about how to move back into the world safely, I recommend checking out friend of the show, Dr. Jen Ma, specifically her Instagram at Gentle Facts Weekly, for a really good infographic about this topic that I personally felt helpful and, most importantly, very calming. And that is all we'll talk about COVID for today. So, moving on. Every so often, a story pops up that covers the kind of science that we all loved as kids. A breakthrough that brings an extinct animal back to life and the world rejoices. Or is destroyed. It kind of really depends on what movie you're watching. A group of scientists led by Tom Gilbert of Copenhagen University and Jian Xing Lin of Shantou University tried to do just that. Using the, and this is where Every muscle in my body tenses up at once. The Christmas Island rat as their de-extinction goal and the closely related Norway rat as their model. In their effort to recreate the genome and bring a giant rat back from the abyss where it should stay forever. They found that 5% of the genetic information created significant difficulties in reaching their goal and made the world a little bit better for the sane people who think there are plenty of rat species already. So I'm going to go hyperventilate in the corner due to reading up on rats for the past week and let the two of you talk about de-extinction for a bit. So life did not find a way in this case for these rats, right? (laughs) Well done. Yeah, the good guys won, finally. <laughs> I mean, I know they're doing science and everything. So James is popping back in here right now. I know they're doing science and everything, but do we need more rats? And this is like a big one, too. Ugh. Well, I think they, they had a model to work with. So they were trying to see, they had the preserved DNA. So to bring it back to life, you have to sequence its genome, edit the DNA of a close living relative to match it. So that's where this, this rat comes in. Make embryos with the revised genome, bring them to term in a living surrogate mother. And so they weren't able to sequence enough in this case, unfortunately. Yeah, that 5% difference is a big yeah. deal, right? When you consider that humans and chimpanzees only differ by about 1% of their DNA, 5% is a significant gap. It doesn't sound like much. But, you know, the idea here is that they're starting with rats, James, because they have such a well-studied close living relative, right? The Norway rat, you know, which is used in all sorts of biomedical research. And so the genome's already sequenced. It seemed like the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. When you think about why you'd want to bring a species back from extinction, and I'm not saying that I would want to do this, but why that question arises, whether it can be done and why, why would it be important, that question's answered you know, with regard to trying to save ecosystems. So it's coming from a good place, or at least potentially from a good place. And starting with the rat is just because there's a genome that's already sequenced and it's, you know, something that could be done more easily than, say, sequencing an entire new animal first. That said, you know, it brings to mind Jeff Goldblum's quote responding to Dr. Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, right? Who says, our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. And Jeff Goldblum's character responds, yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. And that's a different question. You know, I think James is pretty firmly in the camp of you should not bring rats back because there are already too many rats and we don't need more rats, um, especially ones that went extinct, right? There are so many rats out there that are not extinct that the ones that went extinct, why do you need to bring those back, right? Yeah, let's work on net zero for rats and carbon. I get it. I understand. (laughs) I think the, the point here is that to do this in a small animal like a rat is the important first step to see whether it can be done in something larger. Not about whether it should be, though, but whether it can be. 
something larger like a mammoth. A company called Colossal Laboratories and Biosciences is trying to transform elephants into mammoths or at least mammoth-like animals. And this goes back to the ecosystem issue that we brought up. So mammoths were once kept, they once kept Arctic shrubs, trees under control, and they also great fertilizers. So if we can bring some, some of those characteristics back, it can help fertilize our ecosystem. Right. And let's, you know, point out for a second that with all of the thawing tundra that is happening because of climate change, we are opening up new ecosystems that need to be rebuilt in part. And so the reasoning behind why why scientists would want to do this is, seems logical. Again, though, it's perhaps unethical. Um, and there are, you know, it's it's towing that line. And, and so the question is, you know, if it didn't, if a species didn't exist before, there's a reason for that. Maybe it was out competent, you know, being out competed by another species. But we're talking about sort of the kingpin species at the top of the ecosystem. Maybe it's not so much about bringing back that one, but bringing back everything else that could support that one species, right? And if you don't do that, and you're setting them up to fail, that doesn't seem like a right, the right thing to do either. Or we just get invasive mammoths. Oh, no. We'd have to bring back other predatory megafauna. So I would expect saber-toothed cats, cave bears, American lions, all of those things would need to be back to really create a circle of life like the people who are trying to bring the mammoth back. So we're back to Jurassic Park now. Let's bring in the dinosaurs. I guess it would be more like Pleistocene Park. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's okay, Steffi. We're talking about millions of years of difference here, like 65 million years of difference. But So I just lump everything before like the 1900s into, you know, dinosaurs, mammoths. It's okay. Oh, I totally get that. I went to grad school with someone who refused <laughs> to read a paper that was more than 10 years old because it was totally irrelevant. Speaking of a famously de-extinct species, let's talk about the T-Rex. Dear listener, I would ask, does a T-Rex by any other name roar as loud? That's what Gregory Paul and his team asked in a recent article in the journal Evolutionary Biology, stating that there was enough variation in specimens found in the genus Tyrannosaurus to warrant the creation of additional species within that genus. Specifically, Tyrannosaurus regina and Tyrannosaurus imperator, so the tyrant queen and the tyrant emperor. And the entire dino science community was totally on board with it. And that's the end of the story. Oh, hold on. Hold on. I'm, I'm getting more information again. This happens every time I have loose paper in front of me. Um, it turns out the entire dino science community is deeply divided. And this has turned to social media and popular science articles and really opened up a new front in the ongoing battle between lumpers and splitters. So it turns out scientists really are just like us. Well, first, let's talk about what is a species. And this is something that is going to vary depending whether we're talking about extant or living species or whether we're talking about extinct species. So extinct species are often referred to as paleo species. And the idea here is that if you put all of the specimens of a given fossil or several examples of this, of a similar fossil into one paleo species, you can talk about the species and everyone sort of knows what you're talking about. And so that's where T-Rex is. And whether or not that's being split into multiple paleo species or not is sort of the point of that discussion. But when we're talking about living species, you know, Ernst Meyer, who is a really famous biologist, um, had this idea of a single species being all of the members of a group that could breed with one another and produce viable offspring. And so that sort of limits what could and could not be within a given species, right? You know, horses and donkeys can't mate and have viable offspring. They produce mules, but mules can't reproduce. You have to still mate a horse and a donkey to make a mule. So it's a non-viable species. So a mule would not be a species. It's not, it's not a species according to this Ernst Meyer definition of a species. But, you know, when, it talk, when we're talking about paleo species, it's really about how do you consider a group of fossils? And so this conversation about whether you should lump all specimens under T-Rex or whether you should split them out into three different species of the same genus, 
which apparently has been met with a lot of criticism, um, is, is you know, the point of this discussion, and it's, it's an academic discussion more than anything else. And so it reminds me a lot of the discussions around some of our earliest fossil relatives, Australopithecus. And so there's a particular taxon of Australopithecus called Australopithecus afarensis, and that is the species that Lucy, the famous fossil Lucy, belongs to. And there are, at one particular site um, in the Afar region of Ethiopia, there are large Australopithecus afarensis specimens, and there are small ones. And so the question was, do they represent two different species, or do they represent body size changes? So just the normal variation you would see as one grows from being smaller to larger. That's called dimorphism, right? And so it's not related to sex in this case, it's related to sort of growth and development post-birth. And so, you know, do you start off as a small looking animal and as you grow larger, do proportions change in order to accommodate changes in your body mass and distributing that body mass across your joint surfaces, so to speak? That reminds me a lot of this conversation. Ultimately, I think most people would agree that Australopithecus is afarensis is one species, although there are still people who debate whether or not there are multiple genera represented by Australopithecus, and that's a different argument and discussion altogether. Within the T-Rex argument here, it seems to not really carry a whole lot of weight with most of the paleo community. And I think that's in part because the range of variation among these three species is so small compared to what you'd see within any given species um, that's living, that it just seems silly to break them apart, at least in terms of the living species definition. But within a paleo species, if we're talking about small specimens and large specimens and medium specimens, it maybe makes sense to split them out, right? Because again, there's no way to say that Tyrannosaurus regina couldn't breed with Tyrannosaurus rex or vice versa. It almost seems like it acts like jargon for people with that are researching that species. So they can kind of talk about these different versions of these things in a shorthand. Whereas maybe when we're teaching elementary school kids, we just stick with the T-Rex. Does it matter that much? No, it's a, an important question you ask. Does it matter? Yeah. And from uh, the perspective of understanding the biology of these specimens... No, it does not. It doesn't matter whatsoever. All that matters is uh, really for narrowing down and, and focusing on talking about one specific subset of these fossils. Because in this case, it's specifically size. Right. There wasn't biomechanical differences. I mean, other than size being its own, uh, quantity being a quality all of its own. There wasn't a difference in locomotion, in anything like that, it was really just size. So in this case, and I think also with the Eferenza's case that Jason, you brought up, uh, yeah, <laughs> there's not really a lot that's changing if you give them these designations. Well, you get size variations in species right now. So, so mm -hmm. what big of, how much of an impact is this size variation? It sounds like not on locomotion. Well, that's a different question, right? So, you know, this idea of how size affects function or size affects structure is this whole field of biology called allometry. And it's an important field of biology because it sort of helps us understand how size implicates or, or rather how size is implicated in changes in physiology. There are certain limiting sort of steps in physiologic processes that are determined, right, by the rate of carbon transfer or, or ion transfer or whatever, right? Those things don't scale up the same way. So when you have with body size, and so, you know, you have differences in physiological function based on body size. It is important for understanding how the physiology of these animals may have changed or been different a little bit, but it doesn't mean that they weren't part of the same species still, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. it doesn't matter from a, and we know that this is true, like, you know, thinking about kids versus adults, right? I mean, we know that right. your metabolism is much faster when you're younger than when you get older. Um, that just is, is a known fact. And that probably is, is related to body size. It's related to other things too, but body size is a major determinant of that. Determinant of that. And so the day-to-day -day lives of a small T-Rex versus a large T-Rex 
would would be affected by body size, but whether or not it's one breeding species would have no bearing whatsoever <laughs> on this. I think maybe the most drastic difference that you would experience is um, how they would manipulate the puppet in the ABC series dinosaurs from the 90s. You know, is it going to be a hand puppet? Is it going to be a walk around? Is it just going to be a neck through the window? That's the question that you'd really have to ask when you're looking at the differences to that. Now and, I understand. Okay, yeah. this makes it so much mm-hmm. clearer. <laughs> and I think that's probably going to affect, uh, you know, there's going to be downstream effects as far as crew requirements uh costuming probably credits voice acting all that stuff yeah um now we're getting to the really hard-hitting questions thank you for bringing that up stuffy i promise i'll have a fusion (laughs) thing next episode it's okay full disclosure daylight savings time ruined my chance to read this article so (laughs) another casualty to daylight savings time full disclosure like splitting the species into three ruined my chance of reading this article. <laughs> yeah. I feel like <laughs> T Imperator is a pretty good name. Like that's a metal name ready to happen right there. Yeah. I don't know if it needs to be a species name, but Tyrannosaurus Imperator is like some kind of Swedish death metal band. Um, maybe I should mail this podcast to myself and we can start that band ourselves. But anyway, from the dangers of dino designations, we will switch gears to Jason's conversation with paleontologist turned cranial facial researcher and anatomist, Dr. Richard Sherwood, after this message from a podcast that we think you will enjoy. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Phil. And together, we host the History's B-Side podcast. You know, history is full of amazing stories and memorable people, but we don't care about them. Every week, we break down history's biggest stories and the forgotten people who made them happen. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Or follow at History's B-Side on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. This is History's B-Side. I would like to welcome to the podcast Dr. Richard Sherwood, who is the director of the Craniofacial Research Center at the University of Missouri School of Medicine. Short little aside, that's my alma mater, Go Mizzou. I've been a lifelong Mizzou fan, and, uh, and it hurts. Rich, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It is so great to see you. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this. Very cool to see you. It's been a while. It's always nice to see folks from a friendly institution on the podcast. And so we're really delighted to be able to speak with you today. For the audience, um, Rich is a craniofacial biologist, which means he studies you know, growth and development of the craniofacial skeleton or the face and the head. And um, we brought him onto the podcast today because he is a really interesting individual, but also because he does some really interesting work. So, Rich, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing with the Craniofacial Growth Consortium radiographs and, uh, and sort of what that collection is or was and how you got involved in that kind of work and, and what, do we, what have we learned from it? What we're now calling the Craniofacial Growth Consortium study is actually a collection of eight separate historical growth studies. Many of these date back to the around the 1930s, beginning 1930. And I was in, I got involved kind of in the middle of my career with one of those studies called the Fells Longitudinal Study, which at that time was housed at Wright State University in Dayton. Mm-hmm. It had got its start in 1929 in Yellow Springs, Ohio, when the president of Antioch University was having drinks with a soap manufacturer named Samuel Fells, and Samuel asked, what makes people different? And Arthur Morgan, who was the president of that of Antioch University, said, if you give me a lot of money, I can tell you. And that was basically the start of the Fells study, um, named for a guy, a lot of people think it's an acronym. 
but it's named for Fells, which was a big soap manufacturer. They and philanthropy, their family, there's a Fells um, planetarium in Philadelphia and stuff. Anyway, they started recruiting young women who were pregnant and with the idea that they would follow their children from birth and uh, chart their growth and see what they could find out about that. Around that same time, interestingly, the White House had started holding a series of conferences on childhood health, specifically around the 30s. They were very concerned about the effects of the Great Depression on childhood health. And one of the easy ways to tell if it's affecting it is growth, just simple growth. If children Mm -hmm. aren't growing like you expect. So that was kind of the start of that. That study started in 1929 and ran continuously, basically up until 2018. They were seeing the original participants, plus their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so on for six generations. If I could interrupt for a second, I'm sorry. Is this the basis? Like These studies are the bases for all of the growth and development charts that parents are shown with relative to where their own children are at like a pediatrician's office. Is this correct? Yeah, that's pretty much true. I think they've added to it from other places, but there's so much. And because it was the longitudinal nature of these studies, you couldn't do this nowadays. So I started at the center where Fells was, uh, what the continuing work was going on um, at Wright State. And I eventually became the director of the center. And it was an interesting thing because for biomedical researchers now, one of the things when you're planning on, I'm going to use some cohort to study something, you have to over recruit because you can expect to lose about half of the people in a five-year period. With Fells, I would be sitting in my office. This didn't happen a lot, but enough. I'd be sitting in my office and a participant would call me up and say, look, I think it's time for my visit. Do you want me to come in? It was because, because that participation in that study was part of their family history. They'd been doing it for you know 80 years, And they knew they were supposed to come in every couple of years. If they felt like maybe they just didn't get a call, they'd call and come in because they wanted to be part of it because it was so much of their family history. So I wanted to um, sort of ask you, you had mentioned a moment ago that, you know, you couldn't do this kind of a study today. What is it that was unique about this study that would be prevented from being done today? It's just the longitudinal nature of it, right? Those of us that get funded by NIH live in five-year increments, right. the, the duration of an R01. So you can say, I'm going to build a cohort. And all you can say is, I'm going to follow them for five years. You can right. say, I'd like to follow them for 30, but that's going to depend upon getting the next grant and the next one and the next one. People have done that. At, at one point, NIH created something called the National Child Study, where they had, were doing this very widespread across the country And unfortunately, it it turned out to be something of a disaster. They couldn't get the people coordinated well enough that they could do that. But these growth studies, Fells, the way it was designed, you'd see somebody at birth at three months, six months, and 12 months, every half year after that. And then once they became adult around 2022 or whatever, that would transition to every two years. Fells was the only study of the many that started that continued to see people into adulthood because most of these other studies, they were growth studies. And when you quote unquote finished growing, you would get kicked out of the study. They didn't need you anymore. And what could be interesting? So Fells was particularly interesting because you had people who we had incredible dense childhood growth data. And then we were watching them turn into elderly people with arthritis and osteoporosis And we had a lifetime of data and you could see if there was something in childhood that would affect their later health. Bone was a a big part of that study, skeletal maturity, bone health, osteoporosis, that kind of stuff. A lot of what we know about the range of variation through growth and development is from these kinds of studies that can't really be done because of the longitudinal nature of it. But to be clear, it isn't because these studies were dangerous by any stretch, that ethical reasons would prevent us from doing it. It's just that we don't have the kind of funding structures to support that kind of a long-term longitudinal study any longer. Is that correct? 
The one thing would be that these studies used x-ray. You wouldn't want to do that so much these days. So they were taking x-rays of body parts. The stuff I work with, the head x-rays, they did them every six months to a year. I wouldn't want to do that now. But that's all the more reason why we have, have to take advantage of these studies because they've got this incredible record. And, you know, think about in the 30s and 40s and even into the 50s and stuff, people were not as movable. I could give you a long list of the cities I've lived in and moved around. But back then, people didn't move away from uh, their local area, their home area. For Fells, if somebody lived out of the state, we would try to get them back in once every five years. And we sure. would pay for the flight. People like that because they and they would often come out at Christmas was a busy time so they could visit their family on our dime. So it sounds to me like you got involved in this work simply just because you were in the right place at the right time, or at least that's the, your first access to this, although it wasn't the impetus for the research. You've been interested in bone for a very long time. This wasn't something that you became interested in because of the availability of of these radiographs or these studies. The reason I bring this up is that you know we've been talking about a few times lately on the podcast about how science often proceeds by just sheer luck. What is available at the time to look at? This wasn't a case of your interest in bone and craniofacial growth being spurred by the availability of records. You kind of came to it as as a perfect storm, right? Where you had this interest already and then you had access to this incredible resource. Me getting there was weird because I was, as you know, I was a paleontologist at the time, and I was, but I was interested in craniofacial evolution and the factors that influence craniofacial shape. So that's been the running theme for my career. I first met up with the people at Fells for a very non-scientific reason, and that was that my girlfriend was working there, <laughs> and she is now my wife. So I went to visit, and I got introduced to the people at, at the center there. And they were going to teach uh, Dana, my wife, quantitative genetics. And they had a data set that was lying around of phenotypes. And those phenotypes were craniofacial measures that had been used in craniofacial growth papers from the 70s that I was familiar with as a graduate student. So the, the guy that was teaching her was a geneticist. He, wa he wasn't particularly interested in heads. But I said, you know, I know a lot about head and would love to get involved in this. I did. And I was really jazzed. I thought I could get information, genetic information out of Fells that would help me in my paleontological career. And they said, yeah, that's fine. But if you want to use the collection, you really need to write an NIH grant, mm -hmm. which I'd never done, never thought about. And so I wrote my first R01 and I got it the first time through. Wow. That never happens. <laughs> um, yeah. And I should have quit. At that point, because <laughs> I was batting a thousand. Yeah. My record isn't that good anymore. But the original thing was looking at, at trying to apply it to fossils. The grant couldn't be written that way because it was NIH. Of course not. Right. So it was looking for loci affecting craniofacial form. And I, I got into that. And then I wrote a, another R, an R21, a small NIH grant on baboons, and that got funded. And so that determined my the next five years of my life. And then I wrote another grant and I got that. And I just never went back to paleontology. Right. And then it's like, it was so cool. I mean, that, that collection is amazing. And um, I was like a kid in a candy store. Nobody else at all was doing anything having to do with craniofacial anatomy there, craniofacial genetics or anything. So I could do anything I wanted and built up that program quite a bit. Um, and then after having worked on that program for close to 10 years, mainly looking, focusing on the genetics and stuff. I thought, you know, it's a growth study. I should do some growth. Right. That's a good point. <laughs> I thought about it and I had gotten involved with a group out of Case Western that was putting together something that exists now called the Legacy Collection. And that was putting together a virtual collection of head x-rays Basically, for them, it was orthodontic residents. These were all ortho departments. They wanted orthodontic residents to have stuff that they could do research on, learn to do research on. And they wanted Fells to be part of it. And I was there. I was one of 10 curators of these growth studies. And that includes Michigan, Bolton Brush, which was in Cleveland, Oregon, Denver. So we put that together. That exists now. You can Google AAOF Legacy and you'll see this collection 
I thought, well, this is presents this incredible opportunity to get an Uber sample that that nobody's thought about because people had used Fells, people had used Michigan, people had used Denver, whatever. Nobody put them all together. Hmm. And so I said, let's put them together. How hard could that be? Right. <laughs> Famous last words, of course, of course. So we did. We wrote a small grant, pilot grant, got that, did the pilot work, got a bigger grant. And that's kind of where we are now. So we have um, 2,000 people, which doesn't sound, by some standards, 2,000 people is not a whole lot. Right. But we have, these are longitudinal records. These are all based on lateral head x-rays. We've got over 17,000 head x-rays that have been assessed by hand. And then each of those x-rays has been assessed by three different people. That is quite impressive. So to me, Rich, your path is a, a familiar story that we've heard and we've told on this podcast a few times now. And that is that the science of an individual has to follow the money, right? And sometimes the stuff that we are most interested in initially is not the stuff that we can get funded. And so we have to do something else in order to you know, scratch the itch and maybe get us back to what we are most interested in. You've had a unique path because you started off in the anthropology world studying, you know, human evolution, you transitioned your work into more of a biomedical realm because you were following the NIH money, right? And so it's important just to remind our listeners that the National Institutes of Health funding only applies to research that is uh, directed at solving problems of human health. Science that is not directed at human health is not eligible most of the time for funding from the National Institutes of Health. Instead, that science usually is better funded through the National Science Foundation, which is really not going to cover human health at all. Or if it does, it's in a very small minor way, and that's not the biggest part of the picture. The larger grants are available for the National Institutes of Health, and in order to sustain the kind of um, laboratory system that, that many of us need with several graduate students, several technicians, several postdocs at the highest levels, that money needs to be there to do that. And so a lot of us take the skills that we've learned doing National Science Foundation-oriented research and apply those skills to questions of human health. You have had an opportunity to take a little bit different path and go back toward your more anthropology origins. Could you tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing outside of Kathmandu? Oh, yeah. In my paleontology days, I went to Africa um, regularly and would do field work. And I liked working, walking around and looking at the ground for fossils and stuff. And I, that was a real important thing for me. And um, just make it clear, when I started making the shift to biomedical, I didn't think I would stay with it that long. Oh, right, right. It, to me, it wasn't really much of a transition in the sense that I was still trying to answer the same question. What are the forces that influence craniofacial form? And I just thought, I'll go back to being a little anthropologist and be happy with that. And I would have been happy with that. And then after working on this stuff for a couple of years, I met Sarah Williams Blangero and John Blangero and Michael Mahaney, I should add, who were all at the Southwest Foundation for Biomedical Research, where there existed a pedigreed population of baboons. Mm -hmm. That that was my second grant is I, did, I ran a parallel study on those baboons because I'm a, I'm a comparative anatomist at heart. And so transferring that those ideas to a baboon model was very simple. Uh, after I got to know the Blangeros, they said to me, you know, we've got this study. We've been running a study in Nepal since 1985, and uh, we've got all, all the infrastructure built for studies, for genetic studies there, because we've genotyped these people. We have the pedigrees worked out and stuff. And it's in the middle of Nepal. If you have any ideas, then why don't you, you know, try it out? And I thought that just sounded incredible. Again, nobody had thought about doing anything with jaws and teeth and faces and stuff. But obviously, in terms of oral health, jaws and teeth are, are right up front there because everybody's got cavities, got infections, mm -hmm. and, and that because a cavity is an infection and stuff like that. And so um, Dana, again, my wife and I put together pilot work to go. So you fly into Kathmandu, which I always say when I talk about these things that there are you know, there are a number of people who don't believe that Kathmandu is a real place. It sounds mythological mm -hmm. and they think it's either in a Bob Seger song or a Cat Stevens song. Cat um, Stevens. I'm going to go <laughs> team, team Cat Stevens here. 
And uh, but it's a real place and it's a, a fantastic place. And I at that point, I'd been used to working in cities like that, you know, Nairobi and Dar es Salaam and stuff. Um, where it's crowded and and they have stoplights, but they don't mean anything. And uh-huh. um, and so I, I felt very much at home uh, in just that environment. And then the site that we worked at the area is called the Jiri Valley, and it's only about fifty miles as the crow flies from Kathmandu, but it takes eight hours to get there Whew. because you're going in the Himalayas, and right. so it hairpin curves and you go up and you go down. I've described it as the most puke inducing ride you'd ever want to go on. The thing that really captured uh, me is periodically, like most of the time, you're just looking at hillside or some trees or something. And then you'll come around this corner and you'll see some of the most exquisite views that you will ever see in your life. Mm -hmm. And it's the hilltop Himalayas. For most of this, it, it wasn't Everest, but you know, who cares? It was gorgeous. And there's right. nothing there. If it were the U.S., there'd be a T-shirt shop and something there. But there's a guy and a cow, and you kind of just stare in awe at this beauty, and then you move on. And we got to the, the site, and so I was going to do – it had to be low-tech because electricity was irregular at best. You, we couldn't do x-rays regularly or well enough. And so I just thought, okay, well, I'm just going to do – dental molding we'll we'll take whole health whole mouth dental impressions like an orthodontist does and we'll do we'll measure them 10 times till tuesday you know uh, measuring all the teeth and the jaws and that kind of stuff and we'll apply genetic epidemiologic methods to look for uh, genetic loci also the paper we've got just about coming or it'll be out any day on genetic correlations between the teeth and the jaws which is interesting but then working amongst these people, the cool thing was in the city we we're in, there's no there's very little medical care, if any, and no dental care at all. The nearest dentist was a couple of hours away. The most common dental treatment is yank it. Sure, sure. And um, so people were very happy when I brought a dentist um, with us. For the pilot study, it was just we did the pilot study. Once we got the thing in place, the real study in place, we set up this clinic. And the dentist would do research stuff in the morning and then see patients in the afternoon. Um, We had to limit, we couldn't do extreme, and most people didn't need it. We didn't do extractions and stuff because of the risk of significant infection. Sure. But we could do some treatment. We if somebody needed, like the first week we were there, a little boy came in, probably five or six, um, and he had an abscess in his one side of his face was twice the size that it should have been. So he came in and, and we gave him antibiotics. And, you know, a couple of days later, he looked fine. It was a different experience for me to provide a service to people that they valued that was super important. We were there for three years, had that clinic set up. Along with the dental clinic, there had always been a, a medical clinic because the study, the original study was looking at uh, helminthic infection. So worms basically. Right, right. Okay. And so they had a doctor running there. So we had a dentist and we had a physician. Um, and so we could kind of help people. And and that was what the Blancheros were looking for is ways to keep all of that going there, provide this stuff to the people, to the locals in the area. Right. So it's important to point out that, you know, you sustained some of that through funding from the National Institutes of Health. And so, you know, it's not about only uh, Americans' health. It can be about uh, you know, American scientists helping treat health issues across the globe. And that's one of the things that makes the NIH such a powerful funding institute for, for biomedical research. I mean, it's, its reach is undeniable. Um, and so it's really cool to see our taxpayer dollars going to, to support folks who can't support themselves in this regard and doing good around the world, not just here at home. Yeah. And when the, the end of that study, so we had put everything that was needed in the clinic. So we had a dental chair, we had drills or the, the ability to have drills. We did, we had the pneumatic stuff and dental cleanings and all that. I couldn't take it back. It would have cost more to bring it back to the U S mm-hmm. and if we just left it there. So um, my last day there, I was, uh, there was always kind of a group and people are waiting around and um, waiting to go. And there was the head guy from the town, the mayor essentially was over talking to some of my colleagues. Their expressions were pretty serious and they waved me over 
and they wanted to talk to me and, and you get a little nervous about that. And yeah, you're sure. afraid you've done something wrong. And the mayor didn't speak any English. So it was translated to me. He wanted to know what we were doing with the equipment. And I explained, I said, I don't think we, we can't take it back. And so if there is some use for it here, and he came over and gave me the biggest bear hug I've ever got because what there, there had actually been a hospital in, in the town was no longer a hospital really, but they had the space. And he said that with this infrastructure now, he could um, reach out to the government and see if they would subsidize a dentist in the area. And um, so the idea that my little study could have a long-term impact well beyond my time there, that was not something paleontologists are used to. That hooked me. I mean, it was like, that's just, I'm just happy as hell about that. That is such a great story. And it's very heartwarming. I have done field work myself and, you know, we've never left behind the kind of equipment that you talk about, but sometimes it is worth the loss in terms of the sunken costs of the equipment because it's so much more expensive to get it back home. And it's it's amazing to me just taking research equipment overseas, which I've done a number of times, sometimes you can take it one direction, but then you can't bring it home because of airline restrictions. It's just crazy the kinds of of sort of um, red tape that researchers have to go through or anyone has to go through, but you know that's the way the world works. I promised our, our listeners at the beginning of this that in addition to doing really interesting research, you're also a really interesting guy. And so uh, before we started recording, um, we were both sort of talking about our love of our families and uh, and sort of, you know, the importance of work-life balances. I was hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit about your philosophy uh, for being a scientist and uh, and what others might take from that. I value my life and my family. There was a, there was a number of events. I don't, I don't think I should go into the specifics, but there was a number of events that came up around the time that I was defending my dissertation. And it was basically friends experiencing significant loss that happened. My stepmother died on our, on Thanksgiving day, she burst an aneurysm and um, died a few days later. And there was, it was a series of uh, equally horrendous events kind of early on in my career. And I just thought, well, it just changes you. And and then I was working at a place where I was constantly being told, you know, you should basically should never be at home. You should be at the lab. You should be at the office on every weekend and stuff. And I had a mother of a good friend pass away and she was, the mother was very dear to me. And I was told I shouldn't go to the funeral. And that, it just really started to set in that this is a bad environment to be mm-hmm. in. And then I had had several temporary jobs early in my career, as you know, anthro types do. So when I finally got a permanent job, I'd been a temporary year position at this particular place. And then I got hired full time and I was happy as hell. I didn't have to move again. And I bought a house and I was noticeably happy. And I was actually told that people thought I wasn't working hard enough. Mm. I thought, well, this is really weird because nobody's coming to talk to me and nobody's coming to my office. And so it's literally our, if they're just seeing me in the hallway or something. So I, I, I took a different tact and, and I'd have somebody come up and say, well, you know, how's the new house? And I'd say, well, I don't know. I'm never there. And they're like, oh, that's too bad. But they loved it, you know, and I was lying. Right. To my teeth. Yeah, that's well, really I didn't do anything different. That's a horrible way to live. I don't like that aspect of academics. and. You know, for a lot of my career, I work, I work when I do and, and I work weekends sometimes and I work nights and I've gone away when, when I went to Nepal, that project wasn't going to get funded. We had been told it wasn't going to get funded. And then the recovery act hit. Right, right. A week after the recovery act, I got a call from my, my program officer saying she was giving me $3 million. And I thought, well, that's okay. But literally just a few weeks before I got that call we found out we were going to have a baby. And that obviously, as you know, changes everything. And it was very, very difficult because they originally wanted us to start the project in September. My daughter was born in September. So I said, I'm busy. I had to go you know, for a month, month and a half, every four to five months, I had to leave the house in order to do that. So that I was doing because I love the work. I right. didn't do it because I felt like I had to, or that people were watching over me or whatever. So I'd rather encourage in people a love of what they do. If people are happy and enjoying what they do and like the people they work with, you'll get 10 times more work out of them. 
you know, the quality of the work will be will be much better than if you're telling them that they can't be happy and that you shouldn't be happy. Other than that few beginning years I had, I've I've done what I've wanted to do the way I wanted to do it. And I encourage others to do that as well. That is a very good um, message because I, I, like you, I have been told in the past that I'm not working hard enough, but I feel like I've been as productive always, uh, consistently throughout my career, and I get rewarded for my productivity, but then also chastised for my apparent lack of work, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And it, it as a scientist, one of the reasons that this is an attractive career option for many people is because even though we do work in a hierarchical system, we're accountable only really to ourselves and our students, of course, if we're in a major teaching role or our laboratory staff, if we're in a major research role. But but really, we're the um, the ones that control uh, what we do and don't do on a daily basis. And that is a really nice perk of a job to have. But when the productivity is there, you know, the principal investigator who runs a lab should be allowed to decide how they how they allocate their time as long as they're maintaining the work that, you know, needs to be accomplished based on the requirements of their funding agency or the requirement requirements of the institution and, and so on and so forth. And it's a weird business we're in because it's been hard for me in, in terms of productivity that you can see, that you can hold your, you know, a paper or something, it ebbs and flows, right? Right. But that's like if you get a grant, you have to put the project together. You got to hire people or do whatever, and so you're not writing at that point. And then you get to the point where you can start writing, and then you write a whole bunch, and then it's the next grant time and stuff. It's tough if people look at, well, you know, you had a a bad year, and a lot of times evaluators have blinders on. They can't. They don't look at something that happened two years ago or whatever. Is it a bad year if I didn't publish any papers because I was writing a new grant to keep the lab funded, I get really frustrated with that. No, I completely agree with you. More to that point, you might write a paper and submit it, and it might get rejected from several journals before it finds a home. And that could cost you up to a year, depending on, on the review times, right? And so you might write a paper in 2019, and it might not get published until 2021. And when do you get credit for that, right? You wrote it in 2019. You revised it several times probably in the meantime, but the vast majority of that work, and certainly the science behind it, that could have been done even the year or two before that, right? And so how do you actually measure when someone is productive and when they're not? That's a maybe a discussion for another day, but, it is, uh, but it's an important one. And it's, I think, a side of science that maybe um, some in our audience don't know much about. And so I think it's important to shed light on it. My career has been so weird because I didn't plan it out, right? It's, they always, people always want to ask you what your five-year plan is. I've come up with ideas for what a five-year plan would be. And five years later, it's nothing like that whatsoever. And I've had any number of opportunities um, that came my way that I just said, okay, well, yeah, let's try that. You look at what I've done in my career and it adds up really well. Uh, but any of, any of those could have failed um, and then it would things would look different. There's no failure. You, you're going to learn something one way or the other. Be very careful when when opportunity comes knocking. I always tell people just to answer the damn door because you, you try it. And if it's something that takes you down a path for a couple of years, a couple of years is nothing in the grand scheme of things. So see what happens and, and you'd be surprised. That is really great advice. Again, our guest today has been Dr. Richard Sherwood from the University of Missouri. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you, Rich, on the podcast. Thank you so much. Why don't you tell our audience where they can find you on social media? I'm on Twitter at R-I-C-H-S-H-E-R-W. Any other places they might look for your work? We've got this new craniofacial center here at MU. Um, we're working on building a website for it. That's um, taken a little bit of time. You can Google me. It's easy to find me. Well, we will make sure that once that website is published, that we link to it in our show notes. And uh, anything else you want to share with our audience before we go? No, this has been great. I love Thanks. talking about science. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much to Dr. Richard Sherwood for talking to us. I especially love the end to the story of his time in Nepal. Uh, when you think about having a direct impact on a population. That's a really cool, that's a really cool end to that part of his, his life. And we're going to link to more of his work on our website. You can find that at SciNight.com. And we have come to the end of another science night podcast, but don't worry. We've got plenty more episodes lined up 
As always, my name is James, and you can follow me on Twitter at James underscore read three. Steffi, where can everybody find you? You can find me at, on Twitter at Steffi Deem or on Instagram at Starshipin. And Jason, where can everybody find what you're doing? You can find me on Twitter as well at OregonJM. Make sure to keep up with this show's Twitter feed at Science Night and the number one, and check in with our home on the web, SciNight.com, for all our previous episodes, link to the stories that we talk about, and exciting ways to support the show. Please buy our merch. We will be back. Yeah. Merchandising, merchandising, merchandising. And also, like, tell us what kind of cool science communication merch you want to see. I I have the ability to create it for you. We will be back in two weeks. And until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. Science Night, the flamethrower. Kids love this one. Oh, we need a flamethrower, a plasma torch.